2: from the society for nautical research in partnership with lloyds register foundation i'm sam willis and this is the mariner's mirror podcast the world's number 1 podcast dedicated to all of maritime history hello everyone and welcome to the mariner's mirror podcast on this day in 480 bc that's 2502 years ago one of the most important naval battles in history was fought the battle of Salamis. Fought between an alliance of Greek city-states and the mighty Persian Empire, the Battle of Salamis is one of the most historically significant naval battles in history. Prior to the battle, the second Persian invasion of Greece had seen convincing wins for the Persians at the battles of Thermopylae and Artemisium, and it became a turning point as the depleted alliance of Greek city-states finally thwarted King Xerxes. Within a year, two further successes put an end to any Persian attempt to conquer the Greek mainland forever. The Persian Empire was immensely strong. It absorbed the losses of Salamis and continued to flourish for 150 years. But the Greek victory had a profound impact on the sense of Greek national identity and the ideology of freedom. It also ensured that Greek culture would continue to flourish in Greece and lay the foundations of philosophy, science, personal freedom and democracy that many societies around the world know and value today. To find out more, I spoke with the military historian Geoffrey Cox, who has joined us before in an episode looking at the crucial Guadalcanal naval campaign of 1942. But here, Jeff gets to talk about another of his great passions, the ancient world. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the brilliant Geoffrey Cox. Jeff, thank you very much for coming back and joining me again. Uh, It's a pleasure. So, the Battle of Salamis, why don't you take us through the strategic situation? What was going on? What led up to this battle?
1: Well, it uh, went back to uh, sort of a uh, quest for vengeance the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia had against Athens and the Greeks. Uh, There was a revolt in uh, Ionia, uh, the Ionian Greeks on what is now the uh, west coast of Turkey, uh, they had revolted against the Persians uh, and set fire to uh, Sardis. And Athens had sent them some support and uh, the Persians under Darius I, uh, they crushed that revolt and then they sent a punitive expedition to Greece uh, that fought uh, at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, it was turned back by the Athenian army. Uh, the Persians were under uh, uh, Datis and Artefernes, uh, and they uh, had infantry set up, uh, but the, there was, the whereabouts of their cavalry is uh, unknown. Uh, the Athenians, and they had some allies from Plataea, they charged at the Persians with their armor and avoided the Persian uh, archers for the most part. The Persians were not able to withstand the charge. The Athenians ended up surrounding them and the uh, Persians ended up uh, going back to their ships and fleeing. They made one last ditch attempt to take Athens, uh, but the Athenian uh, troops rushed back there. And so when the Persian ships saw that the Athenian troops had returned, they just went back to Asia. This was a, a punitive expedition entirely. Darius was not there. But uh, he was planning for another expedition to Greece to take it over uh, when he died in about 386 BC and his son Xerxes took over. And Xerxes put together a massive expedition into Greece. And it has uh, crossed from history into the realm of legend with some estimates that it had had as many as 1 million troops in it. Now that's not the, I mean, you couldn't sustain a million man army at that point. Uh, but it, it could have been, well, it could have been more than 100,000. And it came from all parts of the empire, including Egypt, Ionian Greeks. Uh, yes, Greeks did side with Persia. Uh, and Egyptians, Phoenicians, Carians. Uh, all all kinds of Persia was a multinational empire at that point, and it, this expedition was being led personally by Xerxes, uh, the King of Kings. And it goes into legendary realm when he crosses the Hellespont by making a bridge of ships. The second bridge of ships, the first bridge of ships, was destroyed by a storm, and so he he had the people who made the first bridge executed. That's kind of Xerxes' solution for a lot of problems is to have people executed. Uh, They dug a canal across one of those three peninsulas uh, in Thracia, in extreme northern Greece because they were afraid to go around it because of storms. Uh, They went down asking for or demanding tokens of submission in earth and water. Uh, But because of their response to the uh, first invasion at about 10 years before, Athens and Sparta were not recipients of these ambassadors. Athens had, uh, before the invasion in uh, 390, they had uh, taken the Persian ambassadors and tried them and had them executed. Uh, And when the ambassadors asked the Spartans for earth and water, the Spartans threw them down a well and said, you can find your earth and water there which, you know, it's pretty creative. I got to give the Spartans credit for that. You never knew what the Spartans were going to do, and usually neither did they. <laughs> <laughs> and the Greek city-states were all fighting among themselves, as they usually do. Uh, they, they argued they couldn't get their act together to stop uh, the Persians coming down. They had an ar- the Persians had an army coming down uh, from northern Greece into Thessaly, Uh, with a fleet covering it on the outside. And uh, what the Greeks had was uh, an Athenian politician named Themistocles. He had insisted that Persia, after the uh, 390 BC invasion, was uh, going to invade again. We got to be ready for it. Hey, let's build a navy. So they built a navy of about 200 ships. And they triremes. And uh, they got together with the other Greeks, but the other Greeks uh, did not want the Athenians, especially Themistocles, in charge. So they put a Spartan named Eurybiades in charge. And uh, the Spartans, meanwhile, had sent troops up uh, to try to at least delay the Persians and hopefully stop them. And they picked a very good place uh, called Thermopylae.
2: Right. Let's pause there before we go into Thermopylae because that's so important. We've got this: the Persians there with an enormous fleet. We've got the Greeks there with an enormous fleet. Do the Persians and the Greeks both have sort of um, extensive shipbuilding naval
1: traditions? The Greeks do, though not necessarily the Athenians. The Athenians had just built their fleet in the last uh, in the previous ten years. Uh, with them in Greece was the Corinthians uh, and the Ienitans. … who also had fleets of their own, and they were very good fleets, uh, but the Athenians had built the biggest fleet in Greece at this point because Themistocles was uh, very convinced that the Persians were going to come back, and he convinced the Athenians to invest in a fleet, not in uh, an army necessarily, though the Athenians did have an army.
2: Okay, so partic- we've got particularly the, the Athenians very strong at power. What about the Persians? Is this, is this uh, something that's natural to them or not? I mean, the, the, the empire that they're part of is so enormous and it covers such vast tracts of land.
1: Were they more of a land-based empire or more of a maritime one, or both? Uh, you might say both, except the Persians themselves had no maritime tradition. For the Persian empires, the Achaemenid Empire's naval power, the Persians depended entirely... On the ships of the Phoenicians, which meant the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, and a couple other places, uh, the kings of Egypt and um, the Pharaoh, well, the pharaohs of Egypt who were submissive to the Persians at that point, and the Ionian Greeks, including the Carians, who were um, most famous in uh, the upcoming campaign because of their queen Artemisia. And uh, the Persians, they would have Persian commanders of these uh, units in battle and they would have Persian marines on these ships, Persian troops, just to make sure uh, the crews didn't decide to switch sides or something. But otherwise, these were entirely Phoenician or Egyptian or Ionian Greek uh, ships and crews and fleets. The Persians had no... uh, no achaemenid empire fleet no achaemenid imperial fleet they depended entirely on their vassal states in uh phoenicia and egypt and uh, ionia
2: and were the fleets similar in terms of of equipment the persians and the and the athenian fleets or were they um with the designs different and you know a variety of different aspects different between the two
1: that is uncertain uh Herodotus in his description of the uh the Greek fleet the Athenian fleet in particular describes the ships as heavier than those of the Persians. Uh but it's not clear what he meant by heavier. Uh some people have have guessed that it meant they were bigger, slower but more powerful while the Persian ships the the Phoenicians, Egyptians, Ionians, they were faster, smaller, more maneuverable. Uh and some have said it might be a difference in the type of wood, because they have different wood in Phoenicia than they do in Greece. Uh some have said that it might be due to the uh the Greek troops on the Athenian, on the Greek ships, because they wore armor that uh was so much heavier than what the Persians wore. And that that is a theme that would continue to reverberate in this war. The armor and the weaponry of the Greeks was so much better than that of the Persians. And that that, that is what enabled the Greeks to defeat them at Marathon and what enabled the Greeks to uh, hold them off at Thermopylae. Uh, Artemisian, uh, th- that's sort of an, an interesting battle if sort of uh, inconclusive. But it it went to the same thing. The Persian fleet at this point, and again, I'm using that knowing that it was, you know, Ionians and Phoenicians and Egyptians. uh, There's, by some estimates, they had about 1,200 ships. Wow. While the Greeks, uh, led by the Athenian contingent, they had, I want to say, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 ships, with the Athenians having maybe 200 of that and then the rest of the groups having a combined, like maybe 160. Uh, The the numbers of ships are uncertain because Herodotus in his history gives one number of ships, I think he says 378, and then when he catalogs all the places that sent ships to this Greek fleet, this allied fleet, they don't add up to 378. And that lets you know that all's right with the world, though, because if they did add up then you would know something was seriously wrong That just it you can't have these things add up it just doesn't it just doesn't work that way
2: yeah and also with a fleet that big it would have been impossible to count and if you think about the the um i mean you can talk about the persian fleet being 1200 ships it would have taken up an immense area of sea
1: yes it would have and that did in fact har- harm the persians both at artemisian and later at Salamis. Uh, Artemisian was the, uh, combined, the uh, companion battle uh, at sea to the land battle of Thermopylae.
2: Oh, yes. Thermopylae. So we've got, let's, let's start there. We've got, we've got the Spartans uh, holding off the, the Persian advance at Thermopylae. Um, why did they
1: choose there? Uh, Thermopylae means the hot gates. And at the time of the battle, uh, it was a track... Thermopylae was a narrow track, wide enough for maybe only one cart, between the mountains. So it was like a cliff on one side, like a straight cliff on one side. And then on the other side of this pass, it went down to the sea. So uh, there was, it was easy to defend. The Spartans uh, famously committed 300 troops uh, under Leonidas, one of their kings. Uh, but there were about uh, – there were maybe 7,000 other troops that were with them at the time. Uh, they were behind the Spartans, but they were in fact present. And so when we talk about like Frank Miller's uh, uh, graphic novel and later the movie 300, it was the 300 Spartans would become legendary because they all gave up their lives. Uh, the remainder of the troops, the Spartans had told them to retreat, either to retreat or – Hold them, told them to move back. There's there a little bit of a dispute as to what exactly they were told. Uh, but this was a place that was easy to defend. If the Persians had 100,000 troops and the Persians had 300 troops, uh, the, the Spartans build a wall across this pass and with their better armor, they're able to hold off these 100,000 Persian troops who often have wicker shields and wear linen, corslets, Uh Xerxes, again, was there personally, and he waited a few days for the Spartans to say, yeah, we can't stop these guys. Let's see. We'll we'll just surrender to them. We'll just abandon the past. But the Spartans wouldn't do that. And uh, so they held off the Persians for several days. And eventually, uh, the Persians found a a Greek traitor named Ephialtes, because whenever you need a Greek traitor, They can always find one around, at least in the ancient world. Uh, It's always someone to tell you where the secret is in the wall or how to open the doors or what the secret route is. And this goat farmer named Ephialtes, who was not a hunchback like in the movie 300, he told the Persians about a track that went over the mountain down into Thermopylae, the hot gates behind the Spartans. And so the Persian troops uh, went up there, and the Spartans saw them, and according to their law, they don't retreat, so they ordered the remaining troops out or back. It's not totally clear uh, if they sent the other troops home because the, the other troops, you know, they didn't want to commit themselves to this uh, and die because they knew they were going to die, or they order those other troops back because if the Persians attacked down that track, they wanted these troops to be in position to take the Persians in the side and the rear and thus protect the Spartan rear. And so from being surrounded. And so if that was the plan, it didn't work. Uh, but either way, the 300 Spartans were left and they had allies from Thespia who refused to abandon the Spartans. Uh, there were some Thebans who were held as hostages. They went back to the Persians and the Persians branded them. The Thebans were actually siding with the Persians. That's why the Spartans had them as hostages. Uh, as much as we lionized the Spartans for you know, making a great stand and being great warriors, Sparta was really not a nice society and most people today would not enjoy living in it. Um,
2: (laughs) But they managed to hold off the Persians in this case, and there was an associated naval battle, which is kind of the precursor to Salamis, yeah?
1: Yeah, it's called Artemisian, or in the the, uh, Roman translation, the Artemisium, a place uh, off the coast. It's maybe about 40 miles from Thermopylae to the east. And the fleet, the Persian fleet, had to keep track with the Persian army so that... The Athenian, the Athenian navy would not go and outflank the Persians and land troops behind them. And this was a common a common strategium in ancient warfare to have uh, a fleet alongside an army marching down the coast to prevent such an outflanking maneuver. And in the case of uh, Artemisian, they were about 40 miles east of, uh, Thermopylae, and it was in an area between the Greek island of Evia, or Ebia, it's it it's pronounced both ways, uh, and the Greek mainland. Avia is the big island off of Greece. It's a big long island. It runs from northwest to southeast, and uh, the Greeks. Had to hold the line uh, between uh, Avia and the mainland, and the Persians wanted to break that line, destroy the Greek fleet, and get around them. But the Persians had some trouble with it, uh, and the the you cited it earlier: a fleet that is so big is going to have some problems finding places to support it. And what happened was the Persian fleet was so big they didn't have enough harbors to pull their ships in when they weren't being used. And so a number of the ships had to hang out offshore and anchor there. And a storm hit and several hundred Persian ships were sunk. Mm. So the Persians tried to uh, maneuver into Artemisian, and Artemisian is on the tip of Avia, on the northwestern tip uh, between it, Avia, and a little, like, peninsular harbor uh, on the other side on the Greek mainland. And three times the Persians tried to get around it um, they tried to intimidate the Greek fleet into uh, surrendering and the Greek fleet was commanded by Euribiotes, uh, but it was really Themistocles who was in charge uh, and he would pay off Eurybiades to let Themistocles you know, run the fleet but nobody trusted the Athenians so they put a Spartan in charge and the Spartans have no naval tradition at least not until Igus Potami mm-hmm. and Uh, so the Greeks went out first and there was a tactic, a naval tactic that is not well understood. And so it might help to explain what the uh, ships were doing at this point, uh, what the ships were designed. A trireme, an ancient trireme was uh, a wooden ship with what's called three banks of oars. That's why it's called a trireme. Uh, a tr- the tri references how many banks of oars. And it had three levels of oars, uh, one on the bottom, one in the middle, and one on top in and, uh, sort of an outrigger. And contrary to popular belief, the people who rode the ships were not slaves. Uh, they were well-trained and they were well-paid and they had to be. Uh, in front of the ship was a brass ram uh, not an actual ram and not even shaped like a ram it was just sort of a brass point type deal and um, at, on the back of the ship were two rudders and they were controlled by the pilot and the pilot had to be very uh, smart and he had to be able to think on his feet and have good situational awareness And so the two main tactics that were used in naval battles were, number one, ramming. You could use the ram to poke a hole in the side of an enemy ship and let the water in, uh, which seems fairly self-explanatory. But there was also another tactic where you rammed them from the stern, which takes away a lot of the power of the ram, if you ask me, but it would disable the rudders and it would force them to try to steer with the rowers, which is not as easy in a battle, although it's certainly possible. Uh, And so there was a tactic that was called a DICPLUS and no one is quite sure what that was. Uh, The thinking is that generally in a plus. A ship and generally the fleets would be arranged in line abreast. So the ships would be all next to each other, pointing at the enemy. What the ships would do in a Deke Plus, the thinking is, is that they would sail between the enemy ships, then turn around and ram them. And I'm not quite sure how that would work, why you wouldn't see the enemy ship trying to go between you and then try to ram them or shear off their oars or something like that. The shearing off the oars was another great tactic because it it removed propulsive power uh, from the ship and it injured the rowers. And again, these rowers were trained and it took a while to train the rowers to work together. So uh, this deke plus, the, uh, the, the common idea was to... Avoid having the enemy pull a plus on you. So the Greeks in particular, they would often have two lines of ships or they would have their line of ships be so thick that you couldn't fit any enemy ships between them. And so in the first engagement of Artemisian, uh, the Greeks managed to capture 30 Persian ships. And the Persians were kind of humiliated about that. So they said... Well, how about we try to outflank the Greeks? Let's take 200 of our 1,200 ships. Uh, well, it's now down to about 1,000 because about 200 ships were destroyed in that storm I just mentioned. And they're going to send those 200 ships down the uh, eastern side of Avia to try to turn around and catch the Athenians and the other Greeks in the rear. Well, guess What? Another storm hit. And, the, and uh, 200 ships, all of them, were sh- smashed against the rocks on the east coast of Avia. So that didn't work, and the Persians were now down to about 800 ships. Uh, and then in the third engagement, it was basically a draw. It said the Athenians lost a lot of ships. It doesn't say how many. Uh, that was unclear. And uh, by that point, Thermopylae, the the Spartan defeat at Thermopylae, uh, had basically negated the reason for holding a line at Artemisian. And so Mm -hmm. the Greek fleet pulled back at that point uh, and moved to Salamis, where they started arguing again.
2: It sounds like they would have definitely learnt some lessons from this pre- this uh, this previous battle, and also slightly weakened the Persian fleet. I think probably encouraged themselves as well that there actually was a way to, to defeat the Persians. So it's one of these very crucial pre-battles, if you like. Um, so that that moves us on to Salamis. Let's let's uh, let's sort of paint the situation here, paint the picture.
1: Well, with the defeat at Thermopylae, the way into. Uh... Southern Greece is open, and when I say southern Greece, I also mean Attica, and Attica is where Athens is. And Athens was one of the big targets of this expedition because Xerxes wanted to destroy Athens, and the Athenians knew it. And they had, uh, either before or very early in this invasion, uh, consulted the oracle at Delphi. they give an answer that's very vague and ambiguous and open to interpretation in one of 15 different ways. And uh, unless you've made a big donation to the oracle and then the oracle will give you a favorable, uh, favorable reading, uh, go figure. It's just an amazing coincidence. <laughs>
2: I wonder if the oracle was knowledgeable about maritime affairs.
1: Yeah, that was something, because I've I've been to Delphi, and it is not really close to any body of water that I could find. In fact, it was rather (laughs) rocky there, as I recall. Uh, Mm. The Athenians went there. The Delphic oracle gave them a negative uh, reading and negative prophecy, and the Athenians were like, oh, crap. What are we going to do? Let's go back and try and get a better one. That was another tactic. If the oracle didn't give you a good prophecy, then you keep going back until you got a good one. <laughs> and so the Athenians went back and they, got an, and they got a prophecy about, and some of this was probably uh, retconning um, when it was written down. A battle at Holy Salamis was part of it. And part of it was about the Persians being held up by wooden walls. And wooden walls became the bone of contention uh, among the Athenians. What did the oracle mean by wooden walls? And some of the Athenians thought that by wooden walls, they mean let's build a palisade. Out of wooden walls, the Persians won't be able to beat that. Yeah, right. They're called fire arrows. Look into it. And uh, the other group led by Themistocles said that wooden walls meant ships. The Athenian navy made out of wood uh, serving as a wall protecting the Athenians, protecting Greece from Persia. So uh, it was decided to completely evacuate Athens. And uh, with the ships, the Athenian navy in the Salamis area, everyone piled onto the ships, and everyone was taken to one of three places. Uh, Trozen was one one part that had been allied with Athens in the past. Salamis, a big island that's sort of shaped like a letter C, some sort, in the Saronic Gulf. That was a big one. Aena was another one, and Aena was also, um, they were the naval power in the Saronic Gulf before Themistocles built these 200 ships. So there was a bit of a rivalry going. But while the Athenians were being evacuated, uh, there was a massive argument going on at, at Salamis as to what to do now with the Persians advancing. And that argument got a lot more heated when the Persians uh, took Athens and... Uh, The Athenians had left a garrison, it seems, on the Acropolis. And they barricaded the Acropolis with wooden walls in line (laughs) with that prophecy. And the Persians shot fire arrows into it, and they burned down the wooden walls. And if you've ever seen the Acropolis, if you've ever been there, it looks pretty defensible, if you ask me even without the wooden walls. And so the Athenians started rolling boulders down on the Persians. And the Persians, uh, they may have found a traitor to tell them, I'm not sure, Uh, but they found a way up the other side of the Acropolis. So they went there and they got up there and they slaughtered everyone on top of the Acropolis and they burned down the uh, temples up there and they burned down Athens completely. And... uh, that what they burned down was not what you see on the Acropolis today, uh, the Parthenon. But if you go to the Acropolis today, you will see some remnants of the first temple that was burned by the Persians. It's very difficult and very rocky to walk on the on top of the Acropolis. Uh, but between the uh, Parthenon, the, technically the temple of Athena Parthenos, and and the other temple on the other side of it, uh there are a bunch of rocks embedded in the dirt and they don't seem to like anyone walking on those rocks although they're not fenced off those are from the original temple that was burned by the persians
2: so the persians have taken uh have, have taken the acropolis um and then uh, their fleet bearing down on the greeks towards salamis
1: yes and uh, the Greeks could see Athens burning in the distance. You can see Salamis from Athens, and you can see mm-hmm. Athens from Salamis. You go to the top of the Acropolis, you look straight to the west, boom, there's Solomus. And uh, the Athenians were very upset about it. They knew this was coming, but they were still upset about it. And the allies of the Athenians, or the so-called allies, uh, they decided, you know, Maybe we don't want to fight the Persians here. How about we try another Thermopylae type deal? Let's build a wall across the Isthmus of Corinth and make the uh, Persians attack across that Isthmus Like, and they would have the same problems that they had with infantry and be, and their numbers meaning little, that they had at Thermopylae. That was a thinking. Of course, that would be throwing the Athenians to the wolves, but... They didn't care about the Athenians. So this was, all, this was the uh, Aenians and the uh, Spartans and the other parties from the Peloponnesus. The problem with that is that if you throw the Athenians to the wolves, mm-hmm. they leave and Themistocles uh, threatened to leave and take all the Athenians to a place in Italy and build a new city there and leave the Peloponnesians to their fate and the Persian Navy would just land troops somewhere else in the Peloponnesus and outflank the, uh, the Corinthian Wall, and Greece would be Persian. Mm. So how did this become a naval battle then? Because you couldn't really have one without the other. And if the Persian fleet was allowed to roam at will around Greece, they could land anywhere they wanted the fleet had to be taken out of the picture. It with you couldn't win with just the land troops here. The fleet had to be taken out of the picture, and the Persians wanted to take the Athenian navy out of the picture. The, the actually the Allied navy because it wasn't just Athenian. We're just using Athenian as shorthand here. Uh, the Athenian navy had pulled into uh, Salamis, and they were at two harbors uh, between Salamis and the mainland. The harbors were um, opening toward the. East, and it, it's very cramped in there. And uh, especially, they're funneled in to the Gulf of Salamis between Salamis and the Greek mainland uh, by the peninsula of uh, Kinosura, which sticks out uh, east to west, west to east, uh, at the southern end of Salamis. And it makes a very narrow opening on the uh, eastern edge to the Gulf of Salamis, and in that opening or just in front of the opening just south of it is an island that blocks it further. So it is a very, very cramped area but it is an area where a smaller navy could defeat a bigger navy and it could defeat a navy with more maneuverable ships because of the limited room there. And the Persian fleet uh, it went to uh, Phaleron, which was the main Athenian port before Piraeus became the port. Phaleron is a, is a little bit southeast of Piraeus. And they were hanging out there as much as they could. And the Persians had a debate of their own. Do we fight the Athenians here? Do we fight the Greek navy here? And uh Everyone wanted to get on the good side of the great king, Xerxes, and certainly did not want to get beheaded by him. And uh, so they had this big debate, and the, the predominant idea was, yeah, let's fight the Athenians here. Let's, let's, let's get it on. Let's bring this thing to a close. Let's get Greece under our thumb. <laughs> so they walked into a trap, basically. Sort of. One person <laughs> argued against it. And that person was, uh, Queen Artemisia of Caria, uh, the city of Halicarnassus, which I will be visiting this summer. And, uh, she was the only woman involved in this whole affair. And a, uh, recently found, uh, uh, what had been a lost, uh, section of Herodotus's history, uh, revealed that, uh, and this is a Greek quote that Artemisia looked like Ava Green. It just said right there, quote, looks like Ava Green. So we know exactly what Artemisia looked like. And uh, she said, you know, why do you want to fight here? This could be a trap. All you need to do is seal off the Gulf of Salamis. You have two entrances to that Gulf, one in the north, one in the south, you cut them off. The Athenians have no food there and you let them starve. Eventually, the whole coalition is going to fall apart. That was her idea and Xerxes respected her highly but he did not take her advice here and he decided that there, they would fight the battle here. Uh, there would be no blockade. There would be an actual battle. Now, uh While this was going on, there was that debate on the Athenian side, on the Greek side. You had the Peloponnesians who wanted to withdraw behind their wall on the Isthmus. They didn't want to fight it at Salamis. Themistocles made a great argument that, hey, we can win it here because this gulf is so narrow. Uh, We can use our numbers and our superior knowledge of the gulf to our advantage. And he won that argument, but... He didn't think it would hold because they were still campaigning with Erebiades to withdraw to the isthmus. So uh, Themistocles had an idea. He sent uh, his slave, uh, Sicinus. he sent him on a mission in a little boat to the Persian uh, headquarters at Phaleron. And uh, he was brought, apparently he was brought before Xerxes himself. And he said to Xerxes, he said to the Persians that, uh, I bring a message from Themistocles. He's with the Athenian navy. He respects the great king. And the navy is, the Greek navy is going to fall apart. They're going to leave at the start of battle. Uh, So there was that information. And uh, then the Persians sent him back. And... The Persians talked about it and they decided, well, let's force the battle now. So during that night, which was about maybe September 28th or so, they sent their ships to blockade the two entrances uh, to the uh, Gulf of Salamis. The Egyptians were blocking the north entrance. uh They were under the command of a full brother of Xerxes named Achaemenes. And then uh, the two squadrons and it's not certain. I'm mentioning where these uh, squadrons were positioned, but it's not certain. What we know, we know very little about the Battle of Salamis and how it was fought because no one had a great view of the battle except for one person. And I'll get to that, but we believe the Ionian and Phoenician squadrons, they were positioned by the south entrance to block any exit. So the entire Greek fleet was trapped in the Gulf of Salamis, and uh, there was no way they could retreat to the Isthmus to fight the battle there, which was what Themistocles wanted. And uh, it's not clear if when the Athenian, when the Greek commanders found out about this, that they were now cut off and trapped in the Gulf of Salamis, uh, if they were angry at Themistocles for pulling this or not, they didn't seem to indicate any anger. And so it may have been with the connivance of at least some of these other naval commanders. Um, but the Greeks had to fight. That was known at this point. So the Persians, they now have their ships positioned at the entrances in the dark, uh, Xerxes decides that this is going to be a great moment for Persia. This is going to be a great victory. He's going to thus go up to the top of Mount Aelaos, which is on the mainland across from Salamis, and he's going to put his throne there. (laughs) <laughs> and it's either gold or marble, depending on the story, or it's both. He puts his throne there and he's going to watch the whole thing unfold. And he's going I to watch. It. Yeah, and you, you got to ask yourself what kind of douchebag would put a throne up there and watch the battle and watch his commanders make all these decisions? You have to be a big douche to do that. That's just terrible. Unless you're taking part in the battle, and he may have, and I'll get to that, uh, he shouldn't have been doing it. It was an implied threat. He was not happy with the performance of his navy at Artemisian, and so he thought he could motivate them in the same way Darth Vader would motivate the Imperial admirals uh, by sitting up on his throne atop that mountain and watch what all the commanders do. Now, this would be a major discouragement for individual initiative. Everyone would be so afraid of what Xerxes would do to them if they made a mistake, they'd be terrified. And so you have that. And the Athenians were getting ready and they got their ships ready. And uh, the Athenians, the Greek Navy, I should say, positioned itself uh, with their backs to the beach in two lines Uh, facing, and this is disputed, uh, I believe they were facing uh, west to east. They were pointed east. And the Corinthian squadron, which was part of the Greek squadron, they, uh, they hoisted their sails and started leaving to the north, which is not good. According to the Athenians, later, the Corinthians were fleeing. They were cowards. They were fleeing. They were going around the island of uh, Salamis and they saw the Egyptian squadron in front of them. But a boat told them, you know, turn back. You're going to win this battle. So they turned back and they got there as soon as the battle was over. Uh, but the Corinthian squadron may have had a very important. Impact on the battle, and this may have been part of Themistocles' plan to sell the navy falling apart to Xerxes. (laughs) Xerxes had to be shocked when he saw the navy, the Greek navy, getting ready and in battle formation. Then he sees the Corinthians leaving. It's like, oh, okay, here it goes. They're, They're going away. It was at this point that the Phoenicians and the Ionians. They start going through that little strait between Salamis, the peninsula of Kinosura, and the mainland. They start going inside it into the Gulf of Salamis between Salamis and the mainland. so the Persians are starting to send their ships into that area the phoenicians uh they were commanded by like each of the kings of the various Phoenician cities were there, but they were commanded by a half-brother of Xerxes named Aria Bignes. And And uh, the Ionians, they had Queen Artemisia there with her squadron from Halicarnassus. They go into that narrow area and they start positioning themselves to face the Greeks. And the Greeks keep backing up. They keep backing up towards their own beaches. They back away from the Persians. And eventually the people on the shore are like, what are you doing? Quit backing up, you gotta attack them at some point. And there is a legend that a mysterious woman appeared and taunted the Greeks saying, what are you gonna keep backing up, seriously? Uh, And then, there's various reasons put for backing up. One of them is that they were waiting, they were trying to buy time for the wind to change. Uh, It's become more favorable to them. But the other thing was they were trying to sort of like a wind up on a pitch. They were trying to get more room to launch themselves. And one further thing needs to be said here. The Greeks had gotten up at dawn and gotten on their ships. The Persians had been awake all night because of the message from Themistocles that they had to block the entrances of this uh, Gulf of Salamis uh, to trap the Greeks there. So they'd been up all night blocking those entrances. They had no sleep, they had no food, and the Greeks, they had sleep, they had breakfast. And so they got on their ships and they launched their ships at the Persians. The, not all at once. It was one ship that started the whole thing. One ship that got tired of backing up, backing up, backing up towards the towards the beach and didn't want to run aground. And the, the got, there was a dispute as to whether it was an Athenian or someone from uh, Aena who launched the first attack, but... Whoever it was, one of, the sh- th- one of the Greek ships on the left launched itself at the Persians without order, without being ordered to do so. And it ran the Persian ship, but it got caught and it could not pull out quickly enough. And then the other Greek ships started coming along to help it and the battle was on. And at this point, uh, that is one of the few uh, instances we have recorded of what actually happened in the battle. Uh, Herodotus mentions other instances, but uh, what happened was the Greeks kept pushing in, doing their ramming, uh, shearing oars against the Persians, uh, locking onto their ships and sending their marines over and capturing them. Uh, Persian ships were damaged and uh, trying to get away. Uh Bigneys, the Persian admiral in command of the Phoenicians, he was killed early in the battle. Uh, we don't know any more about his death than that. And it left the, the Phoenicians leaderless and when you have a uh, an army, a military, a society based on central authority with little individual initiative, especially with that central authority sitting on a mountain watching you, you're not going to be able to come up with something to replace the Admiral when he dies. You're not going to be able to think, oh, what do we do? What do we do? You're just going to freeze and you're going to try to get out of there. And when the Phoenician ships tried to escape, uh, they would fall upon the other Persian ships that were trying to get into the to the Gulf of uh, Salamis because they wanted to impress Xerxes. So the t- escaping Phoenician ships would be colliding with the incoming Ionian ships and it created a completely big mess at the entrance to uh, the Gulf of Salamis and one of that part of that mess was Queen Artemisia. She was trying to escape, and uh, she found another Persian ship in her way. And, well, you don't want to stand in the way of Artemisia. She rammed it. She rammed it and sank it. She rammed and sank one of her own ships and escaped. In so doing, she convinced the Greeks that she was another Greek ship, and she convinced Xerxes that she had sunk a a Greek ship. So it worked two ways for her and no one survived to tell Xerxes that she had actually sunk a Persian ship. So that's part of the legend of Artemisia and she kind of disappears from history after this. No one's quite sure what happened to her. Uh, but uh, that, that was an example of the chaos that the Persians found themselves in. It, sa- it, it said that, and this is a strange term today, but it actually is completely accurate. The Persian numbers were an embarrassment to them. Now, we think of embarrassment as being, you know, you do something stupid, everyone sees it, and you start to blush, and you just want to get away and everything. That's not what this means. Embarrassment means their numbers are being used against them. They're so big that they can't make use of their numbers, and it's being turned against them. And that's what happened at Salamis. It was a trap, and Themistocles helped set it up with his message to Xerxes, and Xerxes bought it hook, line, and sinker because that's what he wanted to hear. Uh, Jeff, what was the significance of this battle? This was the battle that saved Western civilization. It saved democracy. Uh, In Athens, they had a democratic tradition. They had just started their democracy. It was 30 years old, but they were willing to defend it. They would rather die at this point than give up their democracy. If the Persians had won the Battle of Salamis, that would have been strangled in the cradle. There would be no Western civilization. There would be no democracy. There would have been no Republican Rome. There would have been no Declaration of Independence. There would have been no US Constitution. There would have been no Magna Carta without Salamis because the Persians would have suffocated it in the cradle and they would have sent the the Greeks over to some place on the Persian Gulf where they could not have shared their experiences with each other. So this was the battle that saved Western civilization.
2: Well, you don't get a much more significant battle than that. Jeffrey. thank you very much indeed for sharing again your knowledge. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please make sure this is not the last thing you do to interact with our brilliant podcast. Please follow us on social media. Please also make sure that you check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page, where you'll find some truly amazing videos that bring the maritime world to life in ways you have never seen before. I guarantee it. There are wonderful animations, hand-drawn maps of battles brought to life, figureheads animated, the world's best ship models filmed with the latest camera technology and incredible high definition. Please also remember that the podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. You can find them both online, the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up. Yes, you can join the Society. It is thoroughly worth doing and I urge you all to do so for the amazing benefits that membership brings. And you can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. Please also leave us a review and a rating on iTunes if you are listening uh, through an iPhone. And if you do so, I promise I will read it out.